a 14th century historian named Henry Knighton wrote this about John Wycliffe, who translated the Bible from Latin into the common language, English. Historian, Catholic historian Henry Knighton said this, John Wycliffe translated the gospel from Latin into the English, made it the property of the masses and common to all and even to women. And so the pearl of the gospel is thrown before the swine, his words, and trodden underfoot. And what it meant to be the jewel of the clergy has been turned into the jest of the laity has become common. That's just one of thousands and thousands of examples of people trying to stop the spread of God's message of salvation, of the good news of the gospel. Currently in modern day, year 2021, in Iran, if a Muslim converts to Christianity and then is found with a Bible in their native tongue of Persian or Farsi, they risk imprisonment and torture. In Sudan and the Maldives, churches are increasingly broken into and Bibles are confiscated. And some of the countries most severe of all that distribute the largest punishment for finding the Bible in the native tongue are North Korea, Afghanistan, and Yemen. They all have various laws against nationals owning and reading their own Christian Bible. Friends, since the witness of Jesus rising from the dead... Since that great truth 2,000 years ago, the gospel has been opposed in every era, in every land. The good news that Jesus did not remain in the grave continues to go on and to triumph in the face of remarkable opposition. Opposition either from the government, from family members, from neighbors, and even from evil spirits. In Acts chapter 19, we see that though evil spirits and though evil men are working to oppose the word of Christ, the word of Christ still prevails. The word of Christ still prevails. Uh, in our church, we are going to start a series in the book of Ephesians. Something really neat about the book of Ephesians is if you look in Acts chapter 18 and 19 and 20, you see a lot of what is going on in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey, just south of uh, the third largest city in Turkey, Izmir, about an hour drives south of there. And we get to see a lot of the context into which Paul was writing this letter. We're doing this because we'll be in Ephesians for several months, at least through the fall. And this is biblical context context. That helps us understand the world of the Ephesians. No, I'm not, notice, I'm not going outside the Bible here. I'm looking at the book of Acts. So intertextual. What the book of Acts says about the place of Ephesus. So we can find um, our passage on, in Acts chapter 19. That's on page 928 of your pew Bible. Page 928 of your pew Bible. Acts chapter 19. And we're going to read starting in 11 through the end of the chapter. 
Acts chapter 19. Starting verse 11. And God was doing, doing extraordinary. Let me start that again. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men! You know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. 
Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would see the precious truths of the precious gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in this text. Oh God, work in our hearts. Those among us who are loving their sin, coddling it, Fearful to leave it, we pray that the power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would convict them of their sin and that they would repent and experience the refreshment that comes from repentance. Oh Lord, for those who do not yet know you, those who do not yet believe that Jesus is a long way to for Messiah, we pray, oh God, that you would show them the reality that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And that Jesus really will come again to judge the world. We pray that for them today would be the day of salvation. Oh Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Church, we have two points to our sermon. God's, point number one, God's gospel prevails over evil spirits. God's gospel prevails over evil spirits. Point two, God's gospel prevails over evil men. Looking back at verse 11, we have a summary statement of all the happenings through Paul in Ephesus. He is having all sorts of supernatural acts occur through him. Verse 11 says that there are extraordinary miracles by his hands. I just want to pause here and just, let's just, Parse that word real quick, extraordinary, extraordinary, beyond normal. These are not ordinary things happening by the apostles' hands. No one else is in focus here. This is the apostle Paul. This is not normative for all Christians. It wasn't even normative for the other apostles. This is extraordinary things happening through the apostle Paul. They were so extraordinary 
that handkerchiefs and aprons that touch his skin were carried away to sick people and their diseases left them. And they were carried away and evil spirits came out of people who had evil spirits inside of them. Again, this is extraordinary stuff. It's beyond even normal supernatural events. It's beyond the normal supernatural spirit-filled ministry of the apostles. So, if you can't sleep one night, you wake up at 2 a.m., you turn the TV on, and some self-proclaimed follower of Jesus tries to sell you a piece of cloth that he or she blessed, he's either knowingly scheming you or ignorantly scheming you. That should be an obvious statement, but it's not because these people seem to keep making money off of fooling people. Jesus himself commissioned the Apostle Paul. I I say this and I'm, I'm focusing on this word extraordinary because I think people sometimes don't know what to do with the book of Acts or different parts of the gospel. But the gospel writer Luke is clearly trying to make a point. This is not normal. And so sometimes when people read the book of Acts or or other parts of the gospel, they shut the door on miracles altogether or they become undiscerningly poor readers of scripture and they thus strive for the supernatural miracles of the Bible daily. Uh, Friend, don't be like that. Let's read the Bible and put our eyes on the text. The miracles through Paul, they give confirmation that his ministry is trustworthy. You see, you don't want other people to do these miracles because you want to trust the apostle Paul and the other epistles that he wrote. The miracles through him confirm to us that he really was sent out by Jesus and that he really is to be considered one of the apostles. You see, Paul wasn't one of the original 12 apostles. This number 12 is so important that when Judas, uh, Judas hung himself and be, the, one, the one who betrayed Jesus, the apostles in the beginning of Acts, they found another for the number 12 to represent the 12 tribes of, Jude, of, of Israel and now to be the 12, uh, the 12 apostles to usher in the kingdom of God. And then we have Paul. Well, what do we do with Paul? If you want more about this, I encourage you to read the book of Galatians. Galatians, Paul spends a big chunk of of it defending his ministry, authenticating his apostleship, how he was met by Jesus on the road to Damascus, how he was commissioned by Jesus, and how he was affirmed by the 12 apostles, even the pillars of the apostles, the, the primary apostles, Peter, James, and John. Okay, we don't really go through texts like that so often, so I wanted to spend an extraordinary amount of time there. So since these extraordinary happenings were occurring through Paul, some itinerant Jewish exorcists wanted a piece of this powerful ministry. These were men who used to go around and try to expel evil spirits. But notice their ministry must not have been that effective. Because time and time again, if you read the Gospels, People were amazed that Jesus was able to cast out evil spirits. So Luke chapter 4, verses 34 and 36. An evil spirit or a legion of evil spirits is speaking to Jesus. And the evil spirit says to Jesus, Ha! 
What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. There's something unique about the ministry of Jesus that no one has ever seen. And there's something unique about the Apostle Paul's ministry, which has only been seen to a much larger scale in the ministry of Jesus. So not having much success in themselves, these itinerant exorcists who go around and must make money off of promising to get evil spirits out of people, they began demand evil e- they begin demanding evil spirits come out of people, invoking the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But no one can contain this evil spirit. So the sons of Sceva, having seen no fruit of their own ministry, they keep going at this. They try to draw out the evil spirit. And they in vain turn to the name, the name of the Lord Jesus. But there's no power behind it. Because while they have the right name, they have no faith in Jesus. There's no power behind it. They tried to use Jesus' name like a spiritual equation. If I say the right words, recite the right prayer, use the right emotion, then the right thing will happen. Faith does not work like some kind of equation. You cannot manipulate God into working that way. Nor can you apparently fool an evil spirit. Because the evil spirit sniffs us out quicker than anyone. And he does some amazing, extraordinary things to them. He taunts them in verse 15. He says, Jesus, I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And look what happens next. The man in whom the evil spirit, who was the evil spirit, leaped on top of them, these seven men. He mastered all of them and he overpowered them like a mega wrestler. So they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Don't mess with evil spirits. It's one application. If you don't have the Holy Spirit... In spite of the misuse of the name of Jesus, the whole event actually served to further the message of Jesus. Verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, honored, or praised. God used this wrongful use of his name to extol the name of Christ. Oh, may the Lord in our day reveal such shysters like Kenneth Copeland or Paula White or a number of them who are usually find their ways onto television. May God expose them for the powerless and distorted message they preach. I don't know if about you, if you ever just lose heart or seeing you flipping through the television and you, you just wonder, like, how come, 
How come the good guys, how come the faithful Bible preachers can't get a spot on television? It happens here and there. Uh, Well, pray that the Lord would do something like he did in this day. That he would use their wrong messages and expose them. It's encouraging that more and more the mass media is exposing some of these people for the shysters that they are. That is a good prayer, that God would expose them, and that God would even give them a genuine heart of repentance. Many of the new believers in Jesus began to take action with their new faith. So they began to take books, collect them, and rid themselves of magic and witchcraft. They confessed their sins and that that Christ is the Lord. They divulged their practices of magic arts and the books that taught it. And they did this at great financial cost. Note there, the author is trying to draw attention to this. This was a costly undertaking. A collection of 50,000 pieces of silver. That's how much these books were worth. If you ever came to Christ... And you got rid of your music or your old books. You burned them or broke them. Here's a proof text for you. Acts 19, 19. So if you're like me, you came to Christ and you went home. You got your Jay-Z CD. You snapped it in half. Don't look back at young self and say, young self, you were so extreme. No, young self was trying to look at Acts 19, 19 and be faithful. That's a fine way to carry out your discipleship of Jesus. It's not a law, but it's definitely a fine and biblical way. There is biblical precedent there. Well, what do we, what do, we do with all this? Right? What do we do with the sons of Sceva? I wish I could go in more of this. I think this is a fascinating story. You don't make this stuff up. One, just notice that evil spirits are real. I wonder how this strikes you. Evil spirits are real. This is not a fable or a fantasy. Friends, if you think evil spirits do not exist, you're showing just how restricted and narrow your own worldview and experience might be. There are many parts in the world where there is ancestor worship going on, where there is idol worship in the masses, in the millions and even billions. Evil spirits are real. Secondly, note that evil spirits are strong. Evil spirits actually have a power. Thirdly, notice that people might be fooled by imposters, but God never was. People might be fooled by Jewish itinerant exorcists who don't believe in the gospel, but God never is fooled. Their day of judgment is coming just like shysters today. Their day of judgment is coming. And so I know that the news of Ravi Zacharias and many of the events that took place in his life shocked many of us. But God was never surprised. Each day that Ravi had on this earth was one more day for him to repent and to turn to the Lord that he proclaimed in name. But to turn to him with a genuine heart of repentance. God was not fooled. People cannot fool God, even if they do ministry in his name. So do not grow weary of despair, Christian. Fourthly, know that genuine believers in the name of Jesus have more power, not because of power in themselves, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is more powerful than all evil spirits. So Christian, there's no need to fear any kind of evil spirit. The spirit given to you is a spirit not of fear, but of power. And fifthly, God word, God's word prevails. Look at verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Just like in Jesus' day, evil spirits tried to stop the work of Christ. So too in the book of Acts, you see this happening. Evil spirits overtaking people, trying to halt the word of the, the, the message of the, Christ, of the cross. And yet God's word prevails. Well, friends, secondly, we see that God's gospel prevails over evil men. God's gospel prevails over evil men. In verses 21 to 20, and we're going to break this down in in three parts here. We see the loves of men, the madness of men, and the government of men. The loves of men, the madness of men, and then the government of men. In verses 21 to 28 in the book of Acts, or in Acts chapter 19, you see just how much money is at the heart of this riot which is about to form. So look in uh, 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's what Christianity was beginning to be called, the way. I think this is taken from Isaiah, which is uh, often refers to the way of salvation or a highway of holiness. So Demetrius is a silversmith. That is his trade. He makes money by making shrines to Artemis. And the gospel writer is trying to show us something in verse 24 at the end there. This brought no little business to the craftsmen. This is how they made money. And so he gathers together all the other craftsmen, all those who would... Uh, use silver or wood to make idols fashioned out of, fashioned um, from God-made materials by human hands. He gathers them all together. And he says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the things we do really aren't God's at all. They loved money. Ephesus was a city that loved money. So much so that there was no rational reasoning with the words of Paul. Notice that. They weren't saying, I wonder if what Paul's saying is true. All they were concerned was with their pocketbooks. And then you see in verse 26, they loved their idols. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now, I know idolatry can take many forms and fashions. But it first, in the scriptures at least, seems to take place in the form of man-made images. So you think of many shrines in countries like India or Sri Lanka, where there are shrines set up and people give food and they bow down to man-made images. 
The loves of men, thirdly, you see that in their work. Look at verse 27. There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Verse 27, I love my work. If these men keep preaching this message, I might be out of work. Or my work might be looked on in an unfavorable manner if people continue to follow Jesus. In verse 20, verses 27 to 28, you have this kind of city prestige. Look at verse 27. Sorry, yes, yeah, 27. Midway through, the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and cried out once again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Ephesus had this kind of pride about it, about who their God was. Artemis is our God. We worship Artemis. We're the city of Artemis. If you want to have a little shrine of Artemis in your home, you go to Ephesus. You ask guys like Demetrius to build you one. You put it up on your fireplace and then you bow down to it. That's what we're known for. We love that. You see the loves of men here. There are more, but this is pretty substantial. Money, idols, work, prestige. How many of us bow down to, the, to one of those idols this week? We're afraid of how we'll be seen. We love our work so much. We can't follow Jesus to that extent. Is this a wise way to use my money? We see the loves of men trying to combat the gospel message. Then we see the madness of men. Look at verses 29 to 34. This whole scene is becoming chaotic. It's, it's madness unleashed. Verse 29, the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater. They dragged with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Two of Paul's traveling companions who were from Macedonia. And notice the whole time, no one is saying, are the accusations true? Should we reason with them? Should we give them a voice? Reason and logic are missing from the scene. In verse 30, Paul wants to get into the amphitheater and come to the aid of his friends, but... They say, don't do that, Paul, because you might be killed. This is a mad crowd. Verse 32 sums it up so well. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So picture Alexander wanting to make a defense to the crowd at the bottom of this huge amphitheater. If you, you can Google online the, the amphitheater in Ephesus, it's still there today. I've been there a few times when we used to live in that part of the world. It seats around 25,000 people. And Alexander just wants to go and he wants to explain to them why he has this faith in Jesus. But the crowd just shuts him up. And for two hours, they shout him down saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Alexander doesn't get a word in. Artemis is the moneymaker in our town. And also, there's no logic here. That's what the author's trying to say. This doesn't make any sense. No one's trying to hear them out. 
Yeah, the godness would make the godness that they would make into miniature models, Artemis. That's what made the money. But what the author is trying to draw here is not just that men love money, men love idols, men love prestige. Is that men can often go mad. They rejected the good news without even hearing the good news. Don't you long when you talk to your non-Christian friends to use logic and reason? Does it ever make you kind of mad and frustrated? Like, oh, if they would just examine the scriptures, then they would see. Friends, you're not alone. Look at this scene unfolding in, in Ephesus. This is very much like a scene that happened several years earlier from this scene in Ephesus. When Jesus was around, was, when Jesus was put up on the cross. Before that, he was before Pilate. And in Mark chapter 15, we hear the following accounts. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you've said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in their insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cry out again, Crucify him. And Pilate, trying to use logic, said this, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. There was no logic, no rational thinking, no reasoning going on at the cross. The madness of humanity was on full display, just like it is in Ephesus here. The madness continues in Mark's account of the gospel. So you see that in Mark chapter 15, verse 25, says this, And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him said, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Friends, I know what it's like to want to share the gospel and so desperately want to reason with someone. But clearly the Bible is showing us something, that we live in an unreasonable world that doesn't like to use logic, 
that doesn't like to open up the scriptures and do what Andrea did and see that Jesus really is a Christ. He really does call people to himself. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? It's so frustrating, right? Friends, we need to remember that if we were there, we should have very little confidence that we would be any different from the crowd that was yelling, crucify him. And that should humble us. We should realize that if we were in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, that we likely would have a similar response to the crowd. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Friends, and this should humble us. That we should consider verses like Ephesians chapter 2, which tell us to look back on our former selves. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Or remember texts like Romans chapter 1 said that we too used to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness, not using logic, not caring about reason, but just suppressing what we know to be true, that there is a God, that we are sinful, suppressing that way down and not even acknowledging it or pursuing it. This should humble us. Well, lastly, we see that the gospel prevails over the government of men. This is an interesting passage. The gospel prevails over the government of men. The town clerk here is kind of seen as a deuteragonist, not a protagonist or an antagonist, but a deuteragonist. Matt, did you ever use that term? You don't know what that means? Okay. Must not be as popular. Microsoft Word didn't, didn't understand it either, but I found it. A deuteragonist is someone who can switch between supporting and opposing the protagonist, depending on the deuteragonist's own conflict or plot. Meaning, whatever, the deuter- whatever his own interest is, he supports. And so the town clerk, seeing that not having a riot in Ephesus is advantageous for him, he decides to take to the defense of these dear brothers who are about to be mobbed and put to death. But we so badly want there to be a hero or a villain, but here we see that the town clerk... You know, if he was thinking in his right mind, if he was rationalizing with the people, if he was really believed that Jesus is the resurrected king, he would have come to their defense in a different, more powerful way. And yet his main objective is to not stir up a riot because he's considering his boss's boss might come in and have some disciplinary effects on him. And so what do we do with this? What do we do when governments can either be helpful or unhelpful? Well, the Bible says clearly that we honor the emperor. The Bible says clearly that we pray for our leaders. But we also don't blindly say whatever the government says is good, is good. 
Nor do we automatically say whatever the government says is good must be evil because the government's always bad. We don't have an option, Christian. It's pretty clear. Sometimes the town clerk's on your side. Sometimes the town clerk's not on your side. And as Christians, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters of Warner Road Baptist Church, be charitable in your disagreement, especially today. Be charitable and be kind. Hold rigorously the convictions that we so clearly hold as Christians. And then open your hand a little bit more to how we can disagree on how to carry out those convictions. I wonder, in our church, not just Sunday morning, but just kind of in the routine of our church, would a federal government employee feel loved and welcomed here, like his or her job mattered, like this town clerk? I wonder how many of you know that one of our former elders is a federal government employee, Adam Herman. Do you still hate the federal government? If you hate Adam Herman, you have some issues. Salt of the earth. You know what I'm saying? Be careful with your words. Know that the federal government is big and know that God can use it for his good purposes. And at the end of time, he will show how he always used governments from every nation for his good gospel purposes. But also, understand when people are suspicious of something the federal government says is good. Let's just get real here. When someone says that I'm a little afraid of taking this vaccine, that's okay. That makes sense. The federal government has said all kinds of things that aren't true. Currently, the the head of the state, our current president, thinks that someone can decide when they want to be a boy and a girl. And that has nothing to do with their biology. And I would say our last president manipulated the scriptures, the Bible, evangelicals as a camp for his own purposes. Christians, we are not the people to blindly follow leaders. We have our king. His name is Jesus. He rose from the dead. So be charitable with one another. The federal government used to say that if you had more melanin than me, if you were darker skinned, you were three-fifths of a person. You know that, right? So if someone is a little suspicious of the federal government saying that this vaccine works and you must take it and there's no side effects, look, I'm not making any kind of case for against it right now. All I'm saying is we need to be gracious, charitable, understanding, and kind toward people and not make others a villain. That's the posture we have to take when we look at this town clerk. It's like, is he good or bad? I don't know. He's a deuteragonist. That's what he is. And we must unify around this one thing, that the gospel will prevail because Jesus prevailed over death. No matter evil spirits, no matter what evil Men who love their money, love their prestige, love their idols. No matter what kind of government, whether you live in North Korea or whether you live in the United States of America, the gospel will prevail. Jesus will be 
worshipped by all tongues, tribes, and nations. And all of this in all of this change, all of this gospel proclamation only makes sense because the tomb was empty. Men and women giving their lives, being in front of irrational mobs and saying, take my life because I will rise on that final day because my Lord arose before me and I am in Christ. And if you are not a Christian, that is what the Bible teaches. That God is holy and he really will judge sinful men and women. He will do it. Otherwise, Jesus died in vain. If there were multiple ways to God, why would God send his only begotten son to live and to die a painful, shocking death on a cross? Friends, that's irrational. And God is not irrational. He is a God of truth and beauty and goodness. And his word makes sense of this World, So we believe that God is holy, that man is sinful, that Christ is the God man who is not sinful, but was completely holy, who never sinned, who died on the cross, who rose from the grave. And he demands all to repent of their sins and to find their trust in him and in him alone, as we sang earlier. As I conclude, let me just encourage you, look around this world. A lot of what we live in doesn't make sense. But Jesus, risen from the grave, makes sense of it all. It answers our deepest questions about humanity and about God, about his love, his power, and his holiness. I encourage you, if you are not yet a Christian, come talk to me or maybe the person that brought you. They would love to spend the rest of this Easter sharing, you, sharing with you this good news. Before we take the Lord's Supper, let's pray again. Let me go ahead and invite the musicians to come up. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ washed away all of our sins. We thank you that he rose from the dead. And we thank you that your word will prevail in a mad world. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so, God, we praise you that we have no power in and of ourselves. We were not rational thinkers that merely analyze you and came to a truth, but it is your life-giving spirit that breathed life into our darkened hearts. For this, we give you praise. Amen.